Tampa Bay will try to even up the Stanley Cup final tonight in Game 4. It is Canucks Hour here on Sportsnet 650, your home of the Canucks, your home of the Stanley Cup playoffs. Jamie Dodd and Canucks insider Thomas Drantz here with you. You can also read Drantz's work covering the team at The Athletic. Canucks Hour brought to you by Avenue Machinery. Being a champion takes foresight. Build your company to win for years to come with fuel-efficient and reliable Kubota skid steers, excavators, and loaders from Avenue Machinery. Visit avenuemachinery.ca. We'll get into Game 4 in a little bit here. I want to talk some Canucks later on in the show as well. Maybe do some of our our line combination exercise that we teased yesterday on the show, Drancer. But, but uh, let's start with yes. what's bugging me I was today. Say, you're, uh, you're Canucks insider, Thomas Drance. You're also NHL award voter, uh, Thomas Drance. And last night was, of course, the NHL award show down in Tampa. So I've also become old and grumpy. <laughs> I didn't used to be become? old and grumpy. Yeah, no, I didn't <laughs> used to be like this. And now I feel like every day I'm just... Fired up about something that doesn't really matter. It's, and it's working with me every day. It's, it's <laughs> driven you to early grumpiness. I doubt that. Anyway. But hold on, hold on. So l- let me just set it up here. So okay. Vesna Calder, no surprise. Right? Shesterkin, well, Vesna no voted on by the GMs. They yes, got it right. Sure. Yeah. They got it right. Igor Shesterkin won. He should have. No surprise there. That would no have been surprise. stunning if it, if it hadn't been him. Calder, I said on the show yesterday, I don't care about the Michael Bunting debate because it's Mort Sider who's going to win. Correct. Should win. Did win. Perfect. Boom. And then, done. And then some people were like, well, what? what tre- uh, first of all, the idea that Zegras should have won over more, Mo Sider, incorrect. The idea that Bunting should have been ahead of Zegras, also incorrect. My ballot had them listed one, two, three with Bunting third. Yeah, that, that one was... I believe. I chalk. might have had Bunting fourth, actually. I might have had Lucas Raymond third. Anyway, anyways, I have no problem with how that one yeah. shook out. Hart, the, the thing that was interesting about the Hart, no surprise that Matthews won. The thing that I had wondered about was whether him and McDavid would split the Hart and the Ted Lindsay. Goes to Matthews in both instances, which I think is pretty interesting, actually, from the player's perspective. So I want to start with the Hart because it, it segues into the Norris. The Hart trophy was re- awarded to the right player. Austin Matthews scored 60 goals. He's the third player in the cap era to score 60 goals. He did it in 72 games. Maybe it was 73. Ridiculous. Ridiculous. There was a real chance that he could have gone off for 65, that he could have had the best goal-scoring season of his generation um, if he'd stayed a little bit healthier. Matthews was the deserving Hart Trophy winner because of that and because he combined that goal-scoring prowess with high level. He was on my Selkie ballot, so I believe... Not Selkie winning caliber, because it wasn't quite Bergeron level, but who is? But Selkie caliber defense. A legitimately elite two-way player on top of his goal scoring so as the, well. the players got it right, the voters got it right. However, if you had Igor Shosturkin won, I would say yeah. You know, honestly, by the letter of the criteria, most valuable player, Shosturkin is the MVP this year. The problem is, is that by the letter of the criteria... If you were to vote it accordingly, all three finalists anyway, are goalies. It'll be a goalie every year. No, no player would ever be on the list. <laughs> so you kind of have to weight goalie contributions a little bit differently. I did, and that's why Shesterkin ended up second on my ballot despite a historic season. Uh, additionally, if you had McDavid won, yeah. McDavid's yeah. the best player in the world. I mean, what are you going to do? Are you really going to get the pitchforks out for somebody who voted for Connor McDavid? No, Come if, on. If it's a most outstanding player award, he's also my pick. But it's not. It's an MVP award. Any three of those guys have a good case. And I'm going to add another one for you. If you had Johnny Gaudreau won on your ballot, I would say there's an argument for that. 
there's a legit argument for Johnny Gaudreau. Johnny Gaudreau fueled the best line, right, on the best defensive team, the best two-way team in hockey, and that line outperformed anything we've seen in hockey in the last 15 years. There is a real argument for Johnny Gaudreau, in my opinion, to have been an MVP candidate. I, I legitimately believe that, through and through. So, my, my more than anything, though, no matter which way you voted there at the top, we're, we're splitting hairs among the yeah. elite of the elite. Do you really want to take shots at what Johnny Gaudreau accomplished? Do you really want to take shots at Connor McDavid, what they accomplished? It's hard to parse the absolute, absolute best in the world. Which brings us to the Norris. Well, and hold on. The one thing I'll say is I do think, and, and you know, I don't want to come here and start the show with a whole bunch of praise for Austin Matthews, even though he had a phenomenal, phenomenal season, because I know it uh, it rubs some Vancouver fans it the wrong way. He's incredible. But here's the thing that impressed it's me. Okay. Is the fact that he won the Ted Lindsay, too, I do think speaks really highly to what he did this season. Yeah. Because I think the players, and I actually respect the players for this, just default to Connor McDavid. And I understand it, because he's the best player in the world, right? So I think you have to... You have to be truly exceptional to kind of overcome that, oh, I'll just put down Connor McDavid, right? Even Austin Matthews himself said last night, when I get a vote, I usually just write, write Connor's name in because that's how good he is. So I think it really does speak to the incredible season that Matthews had that even the players said, you know what? No, we got to give it to him. He deserved the heart. He he was the heart winner. I, and I'm glad the players did that because it ends the debate. You know, like people would have been outraged about Matthews winning the heart, even though he was the clear winner, if if the Lindsay hadn't matched it. The players got it right. The voters got it right. Matthews wins the twofer. All right. This all brings us to the Yes. North. The most interesting vote of the season by far. Kale McCarr uh, winning the Norris over Roman Yossi only by 25 points, which there's thousands of points awarded here. So yep. that's a very, very tiny margin. Actually had fewer first place votes than Roman Yossi, but was on was either first and second on almost every ballot, whereas Roman Yossi had significantly more uh, third and fourth place appearances on the ballot was even left off one ballot uh, entirely. So Kale McCarr, by a very, very narrow margin, wins the Norris over Roman Yossi. Uh, Victor Hedman finishes in third. This one has prompted a lot of debate. Well, th- here's the problem. Here's the problem. So there were four voters that had Roman Yossi outside the top three. I'm among them. I had him fourth. And it's taken as... A ludicrous argument. I saw a blowhard Toronto sportscaster suggest that anyone who didn't have him in their top three should be stripped of their credentials. Well, I suggest that that person needs to stay up beyond 11 p.m. Eastern time when the game should start, in my view, (laughs) and watch some Western Conference hockey. Because here's the thing. Like, here's the thing. You are splitting hairs when you're talking about defensemen at this level. These guys are all unbelievable. And yet, to conclude that it is a slam dunk, no argument, cannot be debated, ridiculous, you must not have been paying attention, to have Charlie McAvoy ahead of Roman Yossi, you need to watch more games. Like, it is not ridiculous to list out these four exceptional defensemen. For me, there was a very clear top four, but when I'm, I don't talk to other writers in compiling my ballot. Like, I was surprised by how big a landslide there was for Roman Yossi in the top three. Because for me, I legitimately, very strongly considered McAvoy and Roman Yossi for third. But I at no point very seriously considered Roman Yossi finishing ahead of Victor Hedman or Kale McCarr. And to me, I actually think that's obvious. Like, the idea that that's controversial 
blows my mind. I know that Roman Yossi scored the points, but if you want, like, the award is to recognize all-around play by a defense player. And if you want the vote to just reflect point totals, well, make it the Art Ross. Like, split it up. If you really think that Roman Yossi needs to be rewarded, that's on the NHL to create an Art Ross for defensemen, name it after Bobby Orr, slap Bobby Orr's name on it, and then you'll reward Roman Yossi for, for this season and players of that ilk. And by the way, I'm fine with that. Yeah. I like the idea of having an additional award, right? I think I think the NHL needs to make these awards mean more to contemporary fans. I, I mean, James Norris? <laughs> like, all I know about James Norris is that he was... Um, played for the Victoria Cougars back in the, like, you know, pre-NHL West Coast Hockey League, the Pacific Coast Hockey League. That's all I know about James Norris. And, and you know, I'm, I'm kind of a student of the game. So, here's the thing. Roman Yossi, and I hate to do this because Roman Yossi is incredible. But Roman Yossi... Well, hold on. Before, let, before we no, get into... I, I, I want to finish. Yeah, yeah. I okay, want to finish. Go ahead, go I'm ahead. sorry. Roman Yossi, and I hate to do this because I hate to... You know, in comparing the absolute best, you have to make an argument against a guy who had a remarkable season. And I don't like to do it, but you have to do it in going through this process. And when I looked at Makar, Hedman, McAvoy, Yossi, by far the lowest defensive impact of the four, by far, like not in the same category, was Yossi. When I watched the four of them play and I watched... You know, all of them play live this year, some of them multiple times, and I watch them play an additional 10 to 15 times on broadcast television. When I watch them play, I noticed some things. Like, I noticed that Roman Yossi didn't get the tough assignments for Nashville, whereas the other guys are absolute, no-doubter, matchup guys against top competition for their teams. Roman Yossi plays with Matthias Ekholm, so Matthias Ekholm draws those assignments. I noticed the other three guys be absolutely crucial parts of their team's penalty kill. Roman Yossi was not. And here's the last thing. And, and, you know, in going through and making my votes, I watch a ton of hockey every day. And then I look at a ton of data. And then I poll executives, pro scouts, coaches. And, you know, one thing that I believe truly in my, in my bones is if you watch enough Nashville Predators hockey, and, and I hope you don't because it's not great. <laughs> when Yossi's on the ice, four guys clear out to let him freelance. Honestly, sometimes it looks like basketball possessions through the neutral zone. No other team plays that way. And I do believe when you look at the offensive impact in terms of the environment created by a player at five on five, like I think the points that Yossi accumulates overstate the offensive edge that he might have over a guy like Charlie McAvoy. Like McAvoy doesn't always get the points, but the Boston Bruins generate a ridiculous amount with him on the ice, a ridiculous amount more with him on the ice five on five than they do without him. And in fact, the the dis- discrepancy between what they generate with McAvoy and without is larger than the discrepancy in terms of what the Predators generate with Yossi and without. I, I sort of see him a little bit I see him as a great player, an incredibly underrated defensive piece, too. This is not a one-way defenseman. This is one of the best shot blockers in hockey. He is a quality defensive player, and yet I don't think he was at his best defensively this past season. I just think that UC Saros covered up some of the atrophy in his defensive form. Because I, I had him second on my ballot in uh, in 1920, the year he won. So it's not like I'm a, a 
notable skeptic. I just think that as Nashville has become less skilled as a team and as Roman Yossi's responsibility have increased, I think they increasingly operate in a way that's designed around him and isn't necessarily the most efficient way to play. I see too many point shots on the power play. I see too much ISO play yeah. at five on five. And so I I don't look at those points. I don't sort all defensemen by points and say that point total is so unassailable that it's ridiculous to consider guys like Hedman and McAvoy ahead of him when I don't think the offensive impact that he has is actually that much greater than Hedman or McAvoy who are far better defensive players. And so in weighting those factors, I put him fourth. I didn't even think it would be a controversial take. Like, it's clear to me that if you have to win a game tomorrow, you want McAvoy ahead of Yossi on your team. And if it's an all-around defensive award, what, what are we talking about? The idea that it's ridiculous, beyond the pale. There's an argument for Yossi. Don't get me wrong. There's an argument for Yossi. It's not one I agree with, but there's an argument for Yossi. The idea that it's ridiculous to put Hedman, McAvoy, and, and McCarr ahead of him, though? Ridiculous. To the point of being beyond the pale. A, a catastrophe. Doesn't hold water, and anyone who thinks that needs to stay up later and watch more hockey. So for me, looking at it, okay, and it, this was the top three. It was McCarr, Yossi, and Hedman. So Yossi, incredible season. 96 points. Kale McCarr had 86 points. Victor Hedman had 85 points, right? So yeah. it's not, it's a gap, but it's not this overwhelming, oh, he outstripped the field by 30 points no, gap. Like, McCarr, those guys had phenomenal offensive seasons McCarr as well. McCarr had 28 goals. Yeah. So right there, if you're just looking at those three, and, and I think most people would agree with this. Look, I would have had McCarr, I don't know. I, I didn't go through the whole process that you did, right? Because I don't actually have a vote. I would have had McCarr number one. I'd McCarr have to, deserved to win. Yeah, I'd have to dig into it to see Yossi or Hedman. But to me, any of those three, if you, you know, it's you can't use points as the argument ender when you're just looking at those three. Because it's not that big a gap, right? And you look at it on the forward side, like John, Johnny uh, Jonathan Huberdeau had more points than Austin Matthews, but... Everyone understands that Austin Matthews had the more valuable season, right? Of course. With the exception of Jonathan Huberdeau's agent. But other than that, everyone understands that Austin Matthews had the more valuable season. We understand intuitively that there's more to it than just racking up uh, the point numbers. The interesting one for me, and this is the one where you kind of stand out from the crowd, although I know Jeff Merrick said uh, he had Yossi yeah. fourth in his ballot as well is the Yossi McAvoy one, because the the point gap there is different. 40 points. But again, yeah, it's, so that's a significant chunk. It's a significant chunk. But but again, so to, so to me, even if I went through the whole process and settled with Yossi third, McAvoy fourth, or whoever fourth, that, yeah, it's a big gap, but it's still an argument you can have, right? You can still make the case that actually McAvoy does all these other things that make him ultimately more valuable and more impactful than Roman Yossi and the uh, just the gap between their defensive play was massive and the gap between their offensive value is far lower than a 40 point gap in actual production indicates because McAvoy creates an environment where the Bruins generate so much more than when he's off of the ice and that's a defense defender's primary responsibility you you know points secondary assists all, all sorts of things contribute to how a player's hockey card looks in terms of their counting stats, but it doesn't always capture offensive value, particularly in the case of a defenseman. And I thought the analogy you made to the style that Roman Yossi plays and comparing it to, you know, a basketball player going in isolation. And, you know, when I, 
when I think of that, and, and we kind of talked about this briefly before the show, you picture Kobe, right? right. Kobe, the, the Lakers clearing out, Kobe going to work on the wing and, you know, shooting 40% from the field, but ending up with 33 points or whatever it is, right? It's an interesting comparison because I think you could make the argument, and you look at the rest of the roster for the Predators, and you look at a lot of the rosters that Kobe Bryant played for, there is an argument to be made that they kind of need him to shoulder something of that burden, right? That they need him to be the primary offensive driver on that team. The question is, is there a point where it flips over and becomes too much, right? And the efficiency starts to dwindle. And I think that's a really interesting argument to have in a hockey context. And it kind of works, to me, it works both ways against Yossi. Because on the one hand, you can look at it and say, they need him to play like that. But even if they're asking him to play like that, does it ultimately kind of hamper his efficiency in the end? And it's again, I, I don't. I'm not gonna. I wouldn't well, crush here, anybody here, who comes down on the other side of that. But I think it's a really well, interesting no, argument. But I, I mean, I think this factors into it. You know, I, I had a lot of reaction last night with people being like, "Look at who Yossi plays with. Look at who Hedman and Makar play with." And for me, Hedman and Makar are key drivers in the outstanding results that their teams get. You can't watch this playoffs and tell me that I'm wrong. Like, it's not that Hedman benefits from playing on a good team. It's that the Lightning are so good because, because they have Victor, Victor Hedman. And for me, to be totally honest with you, one of the things that I weighted really heavily in, in putting Yossi forth, like, I think Yossi's part of what drives the Predators to be pretty mediocre. Like, it's not that he's a victim of a mediocre team. I think I think they're mediocre in part because Roman Yossi didn't have his best defensive season. So, I mean, that all factored in for my vote. And this is not to slam a guy who's, first of all, you know, been a guy that's been high in my ballot before, a guy I've always been very high on, who I like to watch and enjoy watching. I just don't think that he was a slam dunk winner of the Norris, nor do I think that he's he should be third on the ballot. And I, I, also, I legitimately think McAvoy's better. I also think... We always have to keep these kinds of things in context, right? When we're talking about MVP votes or or whatever, because it's always like, oh, you got this guy third on the ballot. Like, well, I'm calling him the third best player in the NHL then, right? If it's for <laughs> yeah. MVP, you know, right? <laughs> what you're saying defenseman. basically is if you were going to make a top four to win a game tomorrow, Yossi would be in it. Yeah. So it's still a pretty ultimately a pretty big compliment I, to the player. I, I'm stunned. Like when I laid it out, I thought I was voting for Yossi, it, you know, in a in a pretty... High regard. I was like, okay, you know, for me, there's this sort of tier of three that are the best guys. And, and you know, really, there's a tier of two. And I decided Makar over Hedman. And then I was like, okay, McAvoy or Yossi. And I decided between them. And I thought, wow, you know, that's a, that's an incredible, you're one of the top four defensemen. Yeah. And, then, and then I voted for Chris Tanev fifth because he was the primary driver of, in my, in my estimation, of the incredible defensive results managed by the best defensive team in hockey, and I'm the only guy who voted for him, and then people are picking at that, too, in in a voting process where, like, John Carlson, who was the third best defender on his own team this year, got votes, Alex Pietrangelo, Justin Falk, and, and by the way, I'm not casting shade, I'm just saying the Chris Tanev vote's not an outlier. He He deserved more consideration, in my view. I'm stunned that I was the only person who voted for him. Uh, Minor Matt in Abbotsford says, uh, how did Yossi do defending guys like McDavid, Matthews, McKinnon, etc.? I didn't watch many Predators games this season. Well, and as you said, it's it's typically Lindholm that gets the, uh, or Eckholm, excuse me, that gets yeah. the uh, that gets the matchups in Nashville. So that, that's got to factor into your vote, that he's not necessarily getting the matchups against those, uh, the big name players consistently. Marcus and Gibson's text in, and this is a, a variety of a text that, you know, it, 
captures a sentiment that's very prevalent out there. And he, this is an interesting spin on it, though. Marcus and Gibson says, just make another Ted Lindsay award for best defenseman, and we'll see what the actual players think. So yeah, do I it. have come around to the idea of splitting the defenseman award in two. I used to be kind of against it because, you know what? No, we can we can capture the totality of a defenseman's worth. Yeah, it's challenging, but we're up to the task. Let's try to do it. The direction I would go in, it wouldn't be the Ted Lindsay, though. It would be replicating the Art Ross, right? And that's because if you if you split it, okay, best offensive defenseman and best defensive defenseman, and you leave it both up to the voters, the offensive one is just going to go to the guy with the hot most points every year, right? Like, there's not a lot of point in voting on that one. So you may as well just make it objective. There's no voting. There's no subjectivity. Whichever defenseman has the most points, boom, you win the Art Ross, probably call it uh, the Bobby Orr. There you go. And then you and then we go over and vote on best defensive defenseman or best two-way defenseman if you want to use the Selkie, uh, you know, kind of the Selkie modern idea uh, on the forward side. I've kind of come around to that because I get the idea that Roman Yossi deserves some recognition for the offensive numbers he put up, but I also think... It's interesting, it's challenging, it's fun to try to really drill down into a defenseman's two-way value as well. So I think that's where I would lean. Create the Bobby Orr, make it the Art Ross for defenseman, whoever scores the most points gets that trophy, and then you have the debate and the vote on the other side for best defensive defenseman. Yeah, I agree with that. I mean, I I think that Rome, like, we should recognize more, we should recognize more in general in the NHL, in my view, right? Like, I think the President's Trophy should be celebrated in part because the way that the league is set up where only one of 32 teams has anything to boast about at the end of the season, for me, that's too slim. Like, I think there's lots of ways to have a great season. There's lots of teams that had a great season. And I think it would be nice for a variety of teams, like more teams, to have something to celebrate. You know, division winning a division doesn't matter if you lose to the Edmonton Oilers in the second round. But, you know, winning a division should matter. I'm, teams do raise a banner. But it should matter more to the fans and the people following the teams. Winning the President's Trophy should matter more. It's one of the reasons why I think the club, the NHL should adopt an in-season tournament. I think having more things to celebrate, more rewards, more awards for players and teams makes sense. And and so, you know, I, I agree. Roman Yossi should be celebrated for this season. It's just that an award that's designed to recognize the best all-around defenseman, for me, Kale McCarr was the clear winner. And And... You know, I, I'm shocked that there's so many people furious about an awards process that ultimately picked the right guy. It blows my mind. Yeah, by a very narrow margin, but I agree. I, I would have had it going to Kale McCarr as well. Keep your thoughts coming in. 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. The smart alternative, visit Dunbar Lumber on Bridge Street in Ladner or Arbutus in Vancouver online at DunbarLumber.com. Game four of the Stanley Cup final goes tonight in Tampa as they try to even the series up we'll talk about that and we'll get back into the Canucks conversation as well on the other side you've got it on the home of the Canucks Sportsnet 650 relations with Sweden have never been better What's going on? Welcome back to the show Canucks Hour Sportsnet 650 Jamie Dodd Thomas Drance Canucks Hour brought to you by Avenue Machinery. Being a champion takes foresight. Build your company to win for years to come with fuel-efficient and reliable Kubota skid steers, excavators, and loaders from Avenue Machinery. Visit avenuemachinery.ca. 
Hey. Should we actually talk about the yeah, cast let's now? Yeah, let's do it. <laughs> so this was an interesting one. It came up towards the end of yesterday's show. But obviously with the news that uh, the Canucks have won the Andre Kuzmenko sweepstakes, you know, anytime the team makes a, a significant addition, fans, what do you do? You, you, you start to kind of map out how he's going to fit into the lineup uh, next season. And first of all, I will say, I'll start off by saying, I, I am a huge, huge sucker for playing with line combinations. One of the most fun things you can do as a hockey fan, putting them together, tinkering with them, trying to think in your mind's eye how they're going to work on the ice. Now, obviously, it's a little premature to try to do this with the Canucks forward group at this point. We haven't started free agency. I haven't had the draft, anything like that. We have no idea exactly what this group is going to look like when they actually take the ice for training camp or the regular season in the fall. But I think there's two reasons it's worth doing. One, as I said, it's fun. It's just fun to do. And two, I actually think kind of going through the process and working through how to fit together a pretty talented group, especially in the top nine. And I'm kind of going to leave the fourth line out of this for now and just look at the top nine. But the process of working through how to kind of fit them all together it kind of illuminates some of the challenges and some of the tough decisions they might have to make this summer and some of the reasons they might choose to make changes. And we'll start by giving a shout-out to our listener, Clay, on Twitter, who hit us up last night. And first of all, by the way, he said he did this uh, while listening to the podcast uh, with his infant daughter sleeping on him. So you, you love to hear it. That's yeah. fantastic. Uh, Shout-out to Clay. And here's what he came up with in the top nine. And well, I think, or she came up with. Yeah. We're, we're not <laughs> yes. really sure, but, yes. but Clay solved the problem. So shout-out to Clay. In my view, this is the right answer. So I had a slight difference, but I'll read Clay's, uh, Clay's lineup first. So he had JT Miller between Pearson and Besser. I agree with him there. That line was very, very good when it played together. Fit, chemistry, all of those things, and that's the kind of line where, okay, I don't love Miller defensively down the middle, but with Besser, with Pearson, that's just a solid line that you also think can produce. It's it's your best bet to play toughs. There's yeah. no there's no player there that you're worried about defensively, and and well, except except perhaps J T Miller if you if you share my concerns about his two way abilities in the middle. Um, so you know, unless you're moving Miller to wing, if you're insistent on Miller playing center, I think that's your best bet to have a line that goes against Tufts and comes out ahead. So then the next two lines, I'll just read them both here. Patterson between Pod Colson and Garland, and then Horvat with Andre Kuzmenko and Niels Hoaglander. Now, the only switch, when I just kind of did this process by myself last night, the only switch I would have made here from what Clay has is I would have flipped Horvat and Patterson. So I would have had Pod Colson with Horvat and Garland, because again, I think with Horvat, even if he's not going to be your primary matchup guy, you want to have him in a situation where you you can at least feel comfortable playing him in those secondary matchup minutes. And I'm not sure that's going to happen in between Kuzmenko and Hoaglander. So I would have Horvat with Podkolzin and Garland, and then I would go all offense, Pedersen in between Hoaglander and Kuzmenko. And I like that fit. We know uh, Hoaglander and Pedersen are, are close off the ice. They produced very well together in minutes. Uh, you know, obviously Hoaglander didn't have as many minutes as he would have liked, especially with his injury, but when they were on the ice together, the results were pretty good, and I like the idea of fitting a playmaker like Kuzmenko on Patterson's wing as well. So that is how I would line it up, and I think that's that's pretty good. And look, if the, if the team went into game one next year with that as their top nine forward group, you'd say, okay, that's not bad. It does kind of point to a couple of issues, though, and the one that really stood out to me is of Garland, Kuzmenko, 
and Hoaglander. So guys under six feet in Kuzmenko and Hoaglander's case, you know, still new to the NHL. Obviously, Kuzmenko will be playing his first season. Yep. How much confidence do you have in their two-way abilities? How much appetite is there to have two of those guys on the ice together at the same time? To have two of those guys on one line? Or is it a situation where the coaching staff is kind of have to twist yourself, twist themselves into pretzels to avoid it, right? Yeah. Because once you start, if you if you say those two guys can't be on the same line, we don't want that, then it gets really, really difficult to put together. And and some of it's going to depend on how Kuzmenko sort of sort of plays. But we know from how the Canucks have talked about him and how his deployment changed post-Travis Green that Niels Hoaglander's play in his own end is a concern for the club, right? We know that. We know that. That's fact. It's text. What's been said by Boudreaux and, and visible in his deployment. So... If there's some concern there, then then maybe you'd be hesitant to do it. I don't. I I like Garland best with Pedersen, as opposed to Horvat. Uh, the expected goals here's here's Garland's expected goals margin with uh, with the three Canucks centermen. Um, Pedersen fifty two percent, Bo Horvat forty eight percent, J T Miller fifty six percent. So uh, now some of those Miller minutes are probably Miller playing wing, right? He wasn't full time center for all of last season. So I'd imagine there's at least a little bit of noise there, but you know, I, I don't know why, but Garland Horvat just didn't feel like it worked for me last season. And so that's why I'd have Garland down with Pedersen. I like the idea of their, you know, two, what I like about Garland with Pedersen and it was Hoaglander, right? Uh, no Garland with Pedersen and Kuzmenko. Yeah. What I like about that is you've got two really good playmaking right-handed passers with a lefty sniper who's just lethal. Lethal. Absolutely pinpoint. Actually, it was Garland, Pedersen, Pud Colson is what Clay had. Oh, okay. Sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, well, I like that because you've got a bigger body with Pedersen. And then and then Hoaglander, Horvat, I kind of like because Hoaglander's played his best hockey. They've played well together. With with uh, with Horvat, I think there's more chemistry there than there is with Garland, Horvat. Um, and then in this instance, though, Hor- Garland is with Bo in his estimation, which I think is... You know, an interesting. No, sorry. Sorry, I had Horvat with Garland. You've confused Colson. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Clay had Pedersen, Garland, Pud Colson, and Horvat, Hoaglander, Kuzmenko. Right. Which, which I flipped Pedersen and Horvat. Got it. Okay. Yeah. So I, I like that overall. I think Clay answered it, but I still think the whole exercise illustrates the point, which is that this forward group still needs work, even in the top nine. It's not enough to dust your hand off, list these nine guys, and say that's a lot of talent. It is. But how they fit together might be less than the sum of their parts yeah. because of some of the fit things, because of some of the two-way intelligence among the group, and because as a group, with the exception of Pod Colson and Pearson, uh, there's still not a ton of size. There's still not a ton of that heaviness that we know Jim Rutherford and the Canucks want to be part of this team's calling card. And two things that really jumped out to me when I was doing this. One... We've talked so much about the kind of big three of Miller, Besser, and Horvat, and whether any of them could be on the move this summer. Doing this made me really reconsider the likelihood of a Connor Garland deal. And I really like Connor Garland as a player. He was productive. He was productive in Arizona. He does a lot of really good things. He's got the cost certainty, too. He's got the cost certainty at a pretty reasonable number for yep. a guy who can give you top he's, six production. He's the only guy among this Canucks forward group where you have something locked in. And and something locked in that you know is efficient. My question with Garland, though, as you said, is this 
is the top nine of a Canucks as it's currently constructed, as you said, could it be less than the sum of its parts? Is Garland a guy you could move where he has value and teams might be interested in him and you might be get something decent back in return for Garland? And can you replace him with somebody who isn't as talented, just in a vacuum, wouldn't be as talented, but in the context of the Canucks lineup and what the Canucks lineup need, would he fit better and help the team be, help that group be more than the sum of its parts, right? And Garland doing this exercise is kind of the guy I identified as, you know what, that's the situation where it might make sense, where you can actually take a bit of a talent drop off if the fit of the replacement makes more sense. Potentially. And and so... I want to I want to zoom out from this exercise a little bit and talk. Um, there were reports um, about you know the Canucks listening, being interested in listening on on the likes of Besser and Miller, right? And I know Rick Dollywall said earlier today that he'd heard Garland's name yesterday as well. So dovetails nicely with some of what you're talking about. I want to I want to zoom out and look at the fundamentals, right? We've talked about a, we've talked a lot about various issues pertaining to how this club is positioned going into this offseason. And in particular, you know, the amount of cap space money invested in their forward ranks and particularly along the wall, like in on the wings at the winger position and how this team gets better, gets more balanced, upgrades the defense considering those underlying fundamentals. But let's zoom in particularly on Besser and Miller because they're the ones whose names are in the news. They're the ones being speculated about again. Right, we've done seven months of Miller speculation. We've done oh, yeah. we've done three years of Besser speculation, and that's only going to heat up over the next two and a half weeks. Now, here's some of what I think is interesting with Besser. Right, we all know the QO situation. Right, we all know how that hangs over this. The QO situation mitigates to some extent, anyway. Besser's trade value. That's not to say that Besser doesn't have trade value. There are teams that would be willing to uh, do a, a deal for a player in that circumstance. We saw a player in a very similar circumstance in Patrick Lyonet move, you know, not too mm-hmm. long ago, a year and a half ago. So it, it's not to say that Besser's immovable with the way that his contract sets up, with the way that the QO complicates or adds complexity to his situation, but it's a factor that would still be viewed as a negative by any team acquiring him, right? Besser's value on the trade market as an asset would immediately increase were he to sign a three-year deal. Even if that three-year deal came in at seven and a half million, that would, that certainty would alone increase his, his value. Although obviously if the cap, it was lower than that, it would even be higher. That's sort of one of the things you're navigating. If you're exploring that is, is it's effectively a distressed asset. And I, I struggle to understand how the Canucks maximize value for a very, very good offensive player who in some ways has been deployed particularly on the power play in ways that depress his point totals and has this looming contract situation over him. I think that's an almost impossible deal to win. Not not, not impossible, but almost. Very difficult. Very complicated. Miller is the other interesting one. Now, with... Miller, some of what's hanging around is that, in terms of reports, are that the club doesn't feel any pressure here. And and here's a factor that we haven't talked about a lot with, with JT Miller, who remained with the club beyond the trade deadline, right? The team made the de- trades they had to make on trade deadline day, Tyler Mott in particular, but they held on to all of the guys that, you know, they had some time with. Mm-hmm. You're now in a situation where, and I know Jalen Rose 
NBA analyst coined this term to, to refer to NBA free agents. And, and there's a different player empowerment dynamic in the NBA than in the NHL, but I still think it's an instructive way or frame through which to think about JT Miller trade speculation, which is he's a pre-agent, right? So he's a year off, but already the club has reached a point where this is this is a potential situation or a potential trade that has a three-dimensional component. And that three-dimensional component only comes into higher resolution as time elapses, as the club waits beyond the draft, as they wait beyond free agency, as they wait into next season. The shape of this becomes even more pronounced. And, and here's what I mean by this. Uh, uh, what I mean by a three-dimensional deal is that it's not te- just team to team. It's the other team. But there's another team and there's JT Miller. There's a third party at the table with some measure of control, some measure of leverage to impact things. You're already at a point, having waited beyond the trade deadline, where Miller's contract demands and contract situation and the cost of locking him up long term will impact his potential valuation in a trade, right? The Canucks can get him signed to a number that they like. This is moot. But if... The, if it goes the other way, right? And and the team has not exactly hidden the idea that this is a, a re-sign or deal sort of circumstance. If this goes the other way and the club decides to move him, JT Miller's willingness to sign with the team that you're trading with could materially or will materially impact the return for the asset. And this becomes something... Well, it, 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 will, it might even just impact, are they willing to do a deal, let alone the return, right? right? And, and, and that does have a domino effect of impacting your return because it takes bidders out. But if, a team's, if Team X doesn't think they can get a deal done with JT Miller, they might just say, you know what, it's not for us then. Well, and there's, just, there's a different return for a rental at the deadline, for example, versus or a one-year rental versus a fixture in your top six at, at either wing or center over the long haul. A guy that you believe you're adding to your core group. Yeah. Very different costs associated with those two market forces. And the longer that this drags out without a resolution, the more leverage Miller has to impact his trade value. The more this siphons away from the Canucks. So even though Miller doesn't have any formal trade protection, he actually has a fair bit of leverage in this situation. That leverage enhanced when the Canucks weighted and and beyond the trade deadline, it will enhance further now every moment that he gets closer and closer to his actual free agent season, which of course will be the next league year. So it's an interesting dynamic because the club, all indications are they're willing to be patient. They're going to use the time that they have, but you are playing with fire. The longer, the longer players of this caliber or the closer players of this caliber get to free agency, the lower the returns tend to be, right? The, the, the less you get. And, and you can see that illustrated with, you know, the Matt Duchesne return, for example, that the Colorado Avalanche got versus what the Ottawa Senators got just 18 months later when they flipped him to Columbus. Or Mark Stone, uh, when the Ottawa Senators traded Mark Stone to Vegas, right? That was a, another situation where, you know, their leverage diminished as they held on to the player closer and closer to free agency. And and this is a factor that the club has to be really careful about managing, in my view, because you get past the draft, you get to where teams are relatively set with their cap space. That diminishes the number of bidders. Miller's leverage to impact where he goes 
enhances, and you may end up trading a guy who could be valued as a core piece, a long-term fit for the team, for your for the potential trading partner. You could end up trading him as a rental, which comes at a, a reduced value in terms of what the Canucks would bring in in a trade that would obviously, obviously make them worse in the short term. The interesting dynamic here, too, or another interesting dynamic, is that normally when you have a player with JT Miller's record of production, they're going to cash in the most by hitting free agency, hitting the market, hitting the open market, having as many bidders as possible to give them that next contract. Yeah. I'm not 100% sure that's the case for JT Miller because he's, yes, he was really good in the two seasons, in his first two seasons in Vancouver, but obviously his production spiked uh, in a significant way this past year. Miller strikes me as a situation where he has a lot of incentive to get that extension done right now, right? So I don't, I'm not exactly sure in what direction that affects things, but it's just another, as you said, Miller, with, even though he doesn't have a no trade clause, he can exercise some leverage here. And I think the way he would exercise that leverage is really try to steer himself to a team that wants to get a deal done, you know, the day after they sign, they trade for him. For sure. Right? Like, he wants that certain, or, or he wants to get to that locked prior up. to the yeah, trade. exactly. And you're, you're, you're dead on. And it's such an important leverage point. There's one thing, there's one thing to remember, too, is uh, when you're, when you're re- reporting on teams, when you're looking at these situations, sometimes you get cl- so close to it that people start to protect themselves by not telling you the full truth. And sometimes you're actually better off stepping back and analyzing things from afar. You'll get closer by just looking at where the the sort of pressure points are where where different interests intersect and without question for Miller's camp you you want to sign what should be a home run you want to sign this year you want to sign this That's summer. Pro- if you're just looking at it take out anything about you know sentimental reasons or best fit or anything if you're just speaking strictly maximize the financial situation put pen to paper this summer that yeah. that is what you are trying to do if you're JT Miller's camp and that could be in the Canucks's favor in terms of contract talks yep. with him, but if it turns out not to be, if it turns out not to be, then you need to steer it to your favor, which I think requires a relatively proactive approach Well, over the next two and a half weeks. And and that's sort of the main, main point I want to make here, which is that in both situations, in both situations, you've got assets whose value will swing wildly depending on how you handle it now. Right. Like these are situations that are, you know, it's not a surprise to hear them come up in the rumor mill and, you know, buckle up. We're going to hear some whoppers over the next two and a half, three weeks. Right. But it's not a surprise to hear them come up now because the next two and a half weeks are going to massively impact how exactly they are valued in terms of the QO outcome and in terms of how long this lingers from a Canucks perspective in the Miller front. To the point on timing, Jim Rutherford, he hasn't spoken for a couple weeks, but a couple weeks ago, he gave some interviews, and on the JT Miller situation, it was, you know, we'll know more in a month, and at that time, a month was the draft, and he has referenced that sort of timeline on several occasions, which leads me to believe that their line of thinking at least somewhat mirrors what you're laying out here, right? Where this is a situation you don't want to let linger. You want to get done. As you said, they've treated it as a we're either going to resign him or we're going to trade him and we're going to have certainty on that pretty soon. I think there's a lot of reasons why that should be the approach. And again, it maps onto a lot, uh, what a lot of uh, the things Jim Rutherford has had to say about the situation. Uh, quickly, let's talk Stanley Cup final. Game four tonight in Tampa. Tampa trying to even up the series. I, I wanted to get this in. 
Uh, I had a dream about the Stanley Cup final last night. So it wasn't about game four. It was about game five. And here's the situation. It was a 2-2 series. Tampa was down 2-0 going into the third period in Colorado. And then in quick succession, they scored four goals, some of the weak variety on Darcy Kemper. They're up 4-2 in the third period. And all of a sudden, everyone's saying, oh, my God, Tampa's going to do this. Tampa's going to win their third straight uh, Stanley Cup final. So, again, it wasn't about game four. It was about game five. But all I'm saying is if Tampa wins this one tonight and they're down 2-0 going into the third period in Colorado in game five, I, I'm, I'm heading to play now and I'm hitting the Tampa money line. I, I think I might have been given the gift of prophecy <laughs> on this one, Drancer. Fair enough. So you had a dream. I had a dream. The, the Lightning yes. will win tonight. Yes. And then win again. And then win again in comeback fashion. In game five. So are you gonna are you gonna wait for the Avs to are you gonna wait for the Avs to That's what I mean. Well I gotta like see if things are going my way. You know what I mean? Okay. So tonight we'll confirm. (laughs) Yes. And then and then game five's when when you're gonna be ready to eat. Exactly. So another another uh, another thing at stake in the Stanley Cup final is whether I I have the gift of foresight or Uh, not. (laughs) Hey, let's go. I hope you do. I hope you do. It'd be we'll good. Ha- we'll It'd be to, convenient. We'll have to tap into that more regularly. Let let us know. Let us know what you dream about the Canucks <laughs> offseason next show. You know Jamie. what the funny thing was too? Obviously, like dream logic is a thing where it, it, it kind of makes sense, but it doesn't really make sense. This was crystal clear. This was just like a normal hockey game playing out. That's incredible. Your your dreams are better than mine. I have dreams sometimes where I'm just closing tabs. You ever have that? <laughs> I've never had that. <laughs> I have no. like straight up. That's incredible. I have straight up browser nightmares, and like I go to bed, and my whole evening. Is just spent with me, you know, uh, Z's and me closing uh, tabs on my on my browser. Anyway, I'm really curious about tonight. Feels like a super high leverage game for this series. Like, you know, I, there's times I felt this before that Rangers Tampa game four, where I felt like whoever wins this game wins the series, and I feel like that tonight. I feel like that tonight. I think that the Colorado Avalanche have a shot tonight that they cannot miss to, you know, douse some gasoline mm-hmm. on a team before they gather the momentum and the confidence that, you know, if you give the Lightning an inch, they'll take a mile of. So, big one. Sounds like Kadri might be back. Yeah, I haven't seen a late the latest update on that, but he was skating, although... Sounds you know, like Kadri's going to be back. Sound maybe if like he couldn't laying, really shoot properly, but he was going to be give it a go, if, so... If you're visiting play now and laying money down... Do it with the assumption that Kadri's in. And uh, speaking of those odds, last I checked, I'm just refreshing them here, but when I checked this morning, it was a pick'em, dead even, minus 110 which, on either team. Which will also was which is still three, the case. Which yeah. was also game three. So, so the, 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 Avs, the Avs have a lot of respect from the books, as they should. As they should. They are the higher quality team. And yet, you know what Tampa can do to mitigate those odds. Uh, they're so good at it that they... May have cost their cross state rival to change coaches. A, a decision, by the way, which is being so the Florida Panthers have hired Paul Maurice. That's yep. news today. Uh, deposed a- a Andrew Burnett, although Burnett may be given an opportunity to stay with the organization. A lot of confusion because Burnett was a Jack Adams nominee finalist, and that team won the President's Trophy. They had one of the best seasons of the last twenty years. Under Brunette, who took over in tr- tr- trying circumstances at mid- midseason. The fact is, is that if you watched the same system deployed by both the Capitals and the Tampa Bay Lightning, completely neuter what Florida does well, I think you can understand that one. There's a lot of confused reaction to it online, but I don't know if you watch the Panthers in the playoffs, having spent all of those future assets to upgrade their team for this year, 
and seen how much trouble that team had just breaking down a 1-3-1, I think you can at least understand why they felt they needed to make a tough call here. I was beating the drum for Trotz to Florida. I still think that would have been a, an exceptional fit. Obviously, Trotz has, Trotz has to that. agree to that as well. Not every team can win the cup, but at least be fun to watch. <laughs> and the Panthers were that. Would have been a great fit. It would have been a great Ugh, fit. I would have hated seeing that team play Trotz hockey. I don't have a problem with them replacing Brunette because, as you said, there's legitimate complaints about how the team performed in the in the playoffs. And look, they're how close they to the adjusted. situation. They they have insight that we don't to, yep. to the actual workings of the team. I don't have a problem with that. The process, and again, why it played out that way, I don't know from the outside. It doesn't look great. It's probably not. It's not the ideal way you want to switch a coach in that scenario. And I also say, while I don't have a problem with replacing Brunette, I'm not the biggest Paul Maurice guy, so I'm not sure that's the direction. I'm not sure if the upgrade is big enough to justify the kind of bizarre way the process played out. Yeah, they they need experience, and and you sort of wonder if Brunette had had balked at the idea of bringing in a super experienced associate. Uh, some names around that job included guys like Jeff Blashill, right? So uh, very interesting days in, in Florida in general, and of course the Stanley Cup Final will be played in that state. Game four goes tonight. It's a big one. You can hear it here on Sportsnet 650. The People's Show, Bick Nazar, Randy Janda is coming up next. You've got it on the home of the Canucks, Sportsnet 650.